When was the last time that you fell down? I'm talking about actually stumbling and falling. Have you had any good tumbles lately? Solid face plant? (laughs) Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Maybe it's been years. I can't remember exactly the last time I did, though I nearly fell over backwards into a kiddie pool last week. Would have been quite the amusing sight. Sometimes falling down can be a pretty humorous thing. You can go on YouTube right now and pull up reel after reel of people falling down in sometimes humiliating yet often hilarious ways. Sometimes, though, falling down isn't a funny thing at all, is it? If you fall from anywhere, it can be extremely dangerous. Sometimes, falling down can be an evidence of a very serious underlying issue. It was for me. Uh, For a season when I was a child, I would trip and fall over nothing. And this was one of the signs that my spinal cord was being dangerously pinched. I could have been paralyzed if it hadn't been caught quickly enough. Now, while that may be a, a rarer occurrence in the physical world, I believe that's actually the norm in the spiritual world. That whenever we stumble or fall spiritually, it is an evidence of something under the surface. We should not treat our spiritual stumbles as as laughing matters. They're not. And the issues that, that they reveal need to be diagnosed and addressed in a serious manner so that we can learn true repentance and so that God can actually lift us back to our feet. To, to quote Alfred from a Batman movie, why do we fall? So we can learn to pick ourselves back up. Today, I believe we can learn from God's word how to pick ourselves back up again. After incessantly falling down and and falling into sin and falling short of God's ways. And I think that what we'll find is that us getting back on our feet has very little to do with us actually picking ourselves up, but instead on God picking us up off the floor in his mercy. Let's go ahead and open up for the last time to the book of Hosea. Hosea in chapter 14. In this chapter, in Hosea 14, it's like God's people find themselves flat on their faces on the ground. But in the aftermath of their fall, God is there wanting to pick them back to their feet. I'm certain that every one of us here has fallen short again this week. Maybe in some ways, many, many ways, we've fallen short. Which means God's word has some really good news for all of us this morning. Do you pray with me that we would really see and understand this news today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts now to receive from you 
what you would say to us. Help us to know how to respond. May your spirit be moving in our hearts and our minds. Help us to block out any distractions that may come in this place to distract us from hearing from you. Lord, we need you. We need your mercy. We need your grace once again. So we come empty-handed, ready to be filled. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, today's chapter describes Israel stumbling, like falling down in sin. Uh, But last week's chapter, if you were with us, saw things as even worse than that, right? Hosea saw Israel as already dead. The whole chapter focused on death, death, dying, and more death. (laughs) Because sin leads to death. Yet, in the middle of all that morbid talk, that morbid talk about immortality, God made a promise. And he said this towards the end of the chapter. He said, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall ransom them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? This is a promise that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ dying one day, conquering death by rising again. But in the meantime, God's people weren't repentant. They just kept sinning more and more. They were still on this path towards death. But thankfully, that wasn't God's final word for them. Today's passage is like God looks down on his, on his faithless, broken, fallen, dying people, and he opens his arms wide, beckoning them home as he offers mercy once more. Read his gentle words with me in verse 1, which, which doubles as both an invitation and a plea. It says this, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Oh, Israel. Can you hear the emotion behind those words? Return, oh, Israel, to the Lord your God. This was a call to repentance. A call to to turn from your sin and to turn back to God. They had gone astray, wandered off, given themselves over to to worship of other gods. But in his grace and his mercy, God invited them to return once more. But it seems that if you've been with us through Hosea, it seems every time that God called his people to repentance through Hosea, they only disappointed him more. Right? Like Hosea 11.2 says, The more they were called, the more they went away. If they ever responded to the calls, their responses were shallow and and short-lived. And if they turned or returned anywhere, it was in the wrong direction. Hosea 7.16 lamented that they return, but not upward, not to God. And yet, here in Hosea 14, Despite all their failures, despite all their fallings, God was still their God. 
Hosea says one final time, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your God. To, to use Hosea's favorite picture, their marriage still held. Israel had acted like a whore, but God had still been faithful. They could still return. They'd fallen, but God was offering the, this one chance more to get back on their feet. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Iniquity is another word for sin, referring to especially to sinful actions. So things that we do with our, our minds, our speech, our eyes, our hands that are sinful, that are wrong. And by nature, iniquity trips us up. We've all felt this before, right? It makes us stumble and fall. You have stumbled because of your iniquity. They had fallen into guilt. They'd fallen into disgrace. They'd fallen into defeat. And they really, they'd fallen into impending doom. The NIV says that your sins have been your downfall. So how could they stand up again? What would returning to God look like for them? Well, if I had one word to describe this needed return, I'd say dependence. Dependence. There are things that we must do to repent, but with every step, we need God. We are totally dependent on him reaching down and showing mercy to us. And praise the Lord, that is exactly what he most desires to show us. And that's our first point. That the Lord in love wants sinners to return to him, dependent on him alone for mercy. The Lord in his love wants sinners like you and like me to return to him, Dependent on him alone for mercy. Dependence on God for mercy can really be seen here in what we should say in response to God. Okay, he's, he's offered a chance to repent. Hosea then tells us how to respond in verse 2. It says, Take words with you, or take with you words, and return to the Lord. Say to him this. So it's like Hosea let, says, let me tell you what to say. All right? R repeat after me. But it's interesting that he says, take with you words as you return to the Lord. Think about this. If you were an ancient Israelite and you felt the need to get right with God, what do you think you would do? You'd probably think something like, I need to make a sacrifice. I need to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Let me grab a sheep or a cow or a goat and we'll go we'll burn it up. That will demonstrate my repentance to God. But Hosea doesn't say, take a sacrifice with you in return. He says, take with you words and return to the Lord. Why? Well, earlier... He'd said that, God wanted, what, that what God wanted more than sacrifice was actually our hearts. And our words 
tend to reflect our hearts, don't they? For better or worse. So what words did Hosea want his people to say to God? He tells us, take with you words, return to the Lord, say to God, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. It's quite the prayer. And the first part of this prayer is essentially a request for salvation. Take away all iniquity, except what is good. If iniquity is the root issue in our hearts, iniquity is what's got to go. But you and I cannot do this ourselves. We can't rid ourselves of sin. There's no possible way to do that. You can't just work your way out of sin. You can't just brush it under the rug. You can't cry your sins away. Or do enough good to outweigh it. We have to admit our sin. And admit our dependence on God taking it away. Take away all iniquity. You know that Christ appeared to take away sins? That's a direct quote from 1 John 3, 5. Christ came to accomplish what this verse prayed for. Take away all iniquity. Accept what is good. Accept here literally means to take or receive. So, this prayer asks God to take one thing away and take something else for himself. To take that which is good. Most likely referring to the offering of their lips and their hearts here. Now that they were free from idolatry, they could finally give a good response to God. Accept what is good. And God could accept it if he wished to. We'll see that he definitely wished to. The end of verse 2. It may sound like they jump right back into making animal sacrifices again. But while God wasn't opposed to sacrifices at all, that's not actually what this verse was saying. It says here, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. More literally what that says is, so that we may offer our lips as bulls. Or sacrifices. So you get what that says? It's like, we will repay you with the sacrifice of our lips. The, you can also say, we may repay you with the fruit of our lips. That's the, uh, how Hebrews 13.15 actually quotes this verse, saying, Though through Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The sacrifices that God most wants from us are our hearts expressed through our words. Expressed through what we say. We can can never fully repay God's grace. But we can give back to him. We can praise him. And give him the, the fruit of our lips. This is one of the reasons that singing praise is such a high priority for us as a church. 
We need to express our gratitude to God with our words. And I hope that the words we say and we sing can truly express our hearts. Our grateful, continual praise to God, the fruit of our lips, is one of the fruits of repentance. It's what comes out of being repentant. We want to praise. As is the repudiation of sin in verse 3, where he says, Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. So as we turn to God, we have to turn away from sin. In Hosea's view, all of Israel's sins could be traced back to their idolatrously replacing him, to replacing God. They'd sought to replace God's help with the help of diplomacy in other nations. They sought to replace God's security with the security of military might, the horses he speaks of. And they sought to replace God's worship with the worship of man-made idols. Now Hosea wants, he calls them to renounce all of that. To, to turn from this false security, false beliefs they held. Now, it can be easy to identify certain outward sins we need to renounce. Things like anger or sexual immorality. It's a lot more difficult to look at our hearts and to see the sins of idolatry there. It's hard to see it. It's hard to confess it. To see how we've, that we've actually pinned our hopes, our main hopes on things other than God. Our own Assyrians. It's hard to see how we've placed our security in jobs and homes and money, retirements, what have you. Much like the way Israel put their security in horses. We both replace God. And to see the way that we love other things more than we love God. So replacing God in our affections is a form of idolatry. And we, we all tend to look to the work of our hands in various forms to save us. That's our education, or our wealth, or our positions, or our fitness, or our families. Whatever we've built in life, we look to that more than we look to God. Derek Kinder says this, Hosea's scorn for the false gods is as total as Israel's infatuation. No doubt our own scorn echoes his. But as long as the work of our hands looms larger to us than the one who made these hands, verse 3 will still have words for us to use. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. Use these words as you need to. 
We must renounce everything else that we might depend on other than God. The climax of this prayer, much like the beginning of it, doesn't focus on what we must do. It again points us to God and his love. It appeals to his character. Look at the end of verse 3. Right after it says, We will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. Now everything else has been building up to this line. It really stands out here from the rest. In you the orphan finds mercy. We may be like, huh? (laughs) That seems random. Why bring up orphans here? Well, I think Hosea was clearly implying that God's people had become orphans. Think way back to chapter 1, when Hosea and Gomer had three children with funny names. The latter two were named No Mercy and Not My People, respectively. But then in Hosea 1.10, God had said, In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And two verses later, Say to your sisters, You have received mercy. Throughout the book, we saw God express his love as a father to his children. Like in chapter 11 when he said, When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt I called my son. But Israel had essentially disowned their father. They'd adopted Baal as their father. Their, their priests and their kings had become like mothers to them. But all of these things were about to be destroyed. Religion and institutions would fail them. And if both parents died, What would that leave? Orphans. Now in the end, God declares that his people have been orphaned, but that orphans can find mercy in him. Listen, every possible thing on earth that we attempt to replace God with will let us down. Kind of like parents whom we depend on as children dying. Metaphorically, we will be left homeless, destitute, lonely, and abandoned. Without God, our true father, we are orphans. But In you, the orphan finds mercy. There's only one person or thing that you and I can depend on. Nothing else can take away your iniquity, take away your guilt. Nothing else is is worthy of your heart's devotion and your worship. And nothing else will save you. Nothing else will truly give you the mercy that you need. Maybe 
you need to take these words and pray this prayer this morning. Returning to God in your heart. Just like Hosea prompted his people, I can, I can give you some words to pray to God. If you want, you can repeat after this, okay? Heavenly Father, please take away my sin. Through Jesus' blood shed for me, take it away. Accept what is good. Accept my humble prayer of faith. And then I'll follow you. I'll thank you and praise you. Other things won't save me. Other people won't save me. I won't put my trust in them or worship them any longer. I commit to loving you above all else. For in you, this orphan finds your love and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you don't think that those mere words could be effective, God's response is telling. He showed his love before the repentance, giving the opportunity to return, dying for us, we know. And then he shows his love after the repentance, answering our prayer with great blessings. Look in verse 4 how God responds to these words. God says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. (laughs) If you've been weighed down by your sin lately, let those words wash over you. No matter what you've done, when you return to God, this is what he will do. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. Like a doctor, he wants to heal the disease of apostasy or the faithlessness in our hearts. We can't seem to stop wandering from him. But he can stop us. He can heal us. He wants to love us. He says, not just love us a little bit, but to love us freely, or as the message says, lavishly. This is love with no restrictions, no boundaries, and no end. So in other words, he'll love us, and then he will love us some more. And then when we think we've reached the limit of his love, he'll love us some more. I will love them freely. And then he can heal us and he can love us like this because he says, for my anger has turned from them. So God does rightfully get angry with us. We have done things that deserve his wrath. But as scripture says, his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. And the verses that follow here in Hosea will only hammer these ideas home with vibrant pictures of God freely loving his people. Here's the point we're going to see. 
The Lord in love wants to flourish returned sinners. He wants to flourish returned sinners so we can recognize his blessings. The Lord in his love wants to flourish returned sinners so we can recognize his blessings. Over verses 5 to 7, God uses up to 10 different word pictures, most of them to do with plants, all of them making the point of God saying, I'm going to lavishly flourish my people. Now, earlier in the heart of their sin, God had said that they were stricken, dried up, and fruitless. But now, look what he says. Verse 5. I will be like the dew to Israel. So gently, faithfully watering them so that they could bloom with life. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. If you ever had lilies in your garden, you know how beautifully they bloom. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. Lebanon is known for its giant, majestic cedar trees. In fact, even today, the, the image of a cedar tree graces the national flag of Lebanon. And taking root like massive trees would have implied deep and healthy and strong growth. Verse 6, his shoots shall spread out. So new plants popping up everywhere, a a multiplying prosperity and influence. His shoot shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive. Now, if you may may or may not think olives are beautiful, but they were essential in Israel. Olives or olive oil were valuable for food, fuel, medicine, even beauty products. So, Olives growing on trees were a picture of well-being, of, of wealth. It was a beautiful sight. And his fragrance shall be like Lebanon. Whatever fragrance that refers to, this was clearly a pleasing aroma. Maybe think of something like, he'll smell like the hills of Gatineau. <laughs> or like Algonquin Park. They shall return, verse 7, they shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. Now, given the context, most actually believe this verse refers to Israel's shadow, not God's shadow. So, this, this would picture nations coming and resting in the shade of Israel's branches. They're like the tree, and they would come. You know the promise God gave Abraham, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So not only would Israel itself be blessed, but everyone would be blessed as well, including us. Halfway through verse 7, they shall flourish like the grain. Think of the, the vast fields of grain in the Canadian prairies. Far as the eye can see. God says his people are going to flourish like that. A, a healthy, vigorous, expansive source of life. They shall blossom like the vine. 
So this isn't just flowers. That would be fruit growing on a vine. Fruitfulness is restored to them. And finally, their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. The word fame there is probably better translated remembrance. Remembrance. And, and wine usually refers to the idea of pleasure. Something to be savored and enjoyed. So in essence, God is saying that he will have very pleasant memories of Israel. Now that is significant because as we've seen through Hosea, we've heard many of his memories. And they, most of them were sad or tainted or soured memories. But now God reverses all that. Dwayne Garrett says, God's memories of Israel, so often a basis of condemnation, now become the ground of their salvation. Because of his love, memory of them grows like, glows like a warm fire, or in the language of the text, has the bouquet of a fine wine. Like I said, all of these pictures are of God flourishing his people, returning his favor to them. There is a, a freshness of new life here, a, a rebirth, a rejuvenation. There's beauty and pleasure and rest and shelter and prosperity and fruitfulness. There's a stability, growth, multiplication, a, a widening influence. But notice the most important thing about every single one of these pictures God does them. God watered them, grew them, and flourished them. They weren't prospering themselves. This was the pure grace of God. I will heal. I will love. I'll be like the dew to Israel. When we recently planted our garden... Would the, the seeds that we, ha, that we planted have any chance of growing if we didn't plant them in the ground, cover them with soil, fertilize them, water them, replant them after kids dug them up, and then water them some more? <laughs> of course not. Or on a grander scale, could they grow without the rain watering and the sun shining? No. Our garden is completely dependent on sources outside itself giving it what it needs to grow. And so it is with us. We are completely dependent on the grace of God giving us what we need. And more than what we need. He gives blessings beyond what we can imagine. God is the one who ultimately gives us every blessing we will ever experience. If you don't yet see that this was God's point here, listen to his passion in verse 8. In verse 8, O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. In other words, it is I who answer your prayer. It is I who look after you, taking care of you. I'm like an evergreen cypress. I'm the ultimate great tree. And from me comes your fruit. From me comes your fruit. 
for me and for me alone. You think little statues of gold and silver are prospering you? Oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer. Listen, your blessings in life do not come from you. Your blessings in life do not come from your upbringing. They don't come from your ethnic heritage. They don't come from your family, your friendships, your relationships. They don't come from your intelligence or your skills, your accomplishments, your work ethic, your social class. They don't come from your sacrifices, your wealth, They don't come from your control or your security. Every blessing you have received are receiving and will receive comes from the hand of God. We don't know exactly when Hosea's eventual flourishing he describes here would take place. If it happened when a a remnant returned to Israel from exile, or if it alludes to the the prospering of God's kingdom under Christ, or if it's still looking ahead to the future, to the ultimate flourishing of eternity. For us, it it can certainly help us sense what that future will be like. And that can help address one of our biggest objections in our minds to all this. Some of you think, if God wants to flourish, return sinners, then why don't I feel blessed? I mean, these are some pretty hefty promises God gives to repentant people here, aren't they? So, where is God's love whenever our present lives seem nothing like this. Maybe we think, if we're not flourishing, is that a sign that we haven't truly repented? I would not go there. Our present faith doesn't dictate our prosperity. Our present well-being is determined by the grace of God. Nothing else. But I'd say that this principle holds true even when our lives are not this great. Okay? God's ultimate desire is to prosper and flourish his people. But in the short term, we won't necessarily feel all those blessings. I do believe we'll all experience some of them, but not necessarily all of them. In fact, in the here and now... God often has his people walk challenging roads in order to bring even greater blessing to their lives later on. That's huge. God has his people walk hard roads sometimes 
in order to bring even greater blessings later on. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. God, That's God's ultimate desire. And his ultimate desire will come to pass even though it hasn't yet. And so... We must still do what Hosea told us to do a couple chapters ago. You remember what, what, what he said? So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice. And wait continually for your God. Wait continually for him. But God wants to flourish us so that we'll come to the place of giving him all the glory. Of recognizing that it is he that answers and he that looks after us. He that blesses our lives. However many blessings you see in your life right now. Maybe many, maybe few. However many you see. Do you recognize this truth? All that we have comes from him alone. See it, admit it, and thank him for it. This is essentially God's parting word in Hosea. His final attempt to reason with his people. And then verse 9, final verse, is like a, a postscript. It's written to anyone who has read these words. And Hosea says this, Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. This speaks of the final step that God wants. After he's given mercy to us, after he's given blessings to us, he wants us to then live life the right way, following him in his ways. So this is, this is really post-salvation. We do not earn the mercy or grace of God here. This is where we live it out. But even the ability to live it out is God's grace. He's given us his word to teach us how. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Here's the final point of Hosea. Ready? The Lord in love wants to show returned sinners his ways so we can live wisely and rightly. The Lord in love wants to show us, return sinners his ways, so that we can live rightly and wisely. If he didn't, he'd never have said this. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. Basically, let the reader understand. You'll need some wisdom. You'll need some discernment to understand God's words. But the Bible says that God gives wisdom generously to all those who ask for it. 
why should we care about this? Why should we care about understanding these things? Because for the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Three reasons in this verse to follow God's ways. First, it's wise. Second, it's right. And third, it's harmful not to do so. But the final line, Hosea returns to the picture of stumbling and falling down. Where we started. In verse 1, people stumbled because of sin. It's the same in verse 9. But transgressors stumble in them. If you insist on staying in your sin and not returning to God, your life will stumble and fall and collapse one day. If it hasn't yet, it will one day. Even if that is at the very end of your life. But on the other hand, those who are upright, it says, stand on their feet. And they walk steadily. And the upright walk in the ways of the Lord. This verse really presents two ways to live. Do you want to stand and walk? Or do you want to stumble and fall? That may seem overly simplified to you. But sometimes the truth is very simple. There is life in God's ways and in God's words. Many orphans have found mercy in them. And you can. But if you refuse to know the truth, God's words may only prove to be a tripping hazard to you. You may find difficulty or offense in them. So if you are wise, if you're understanding, seek out the truth. Look for what is right. Dwayne Garris sums up by saying, Hosea's final message to us is this. How do you read the words of this book? Do they enlighten or confound? Are they life or death? Your response describes not so much the state of my book as the state of your soul. And please notice this. The prophecy of Hosea here is totally open-ended. Right? God has spoken. Now it's his people's chance to respond. And as the final verse says, whoever is wise, whoever is discerning, the response is now ours. Will we continue to stumble along in life to our present and eternal peril? Or will we, by the great mercy of our God, rise and walk again? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love. 
thank you for your grace. We thank you for your faithfulness. No matter how many times we stumble and fall, that your mercy is greater than that. Until the day we take our last breath, there is still a chance for us to respond to you, to come find your mercy. We pray that if there are still orphans among us today, that they would find you today. And find you to be the Heavenly Father that they never had. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.